Hey, I'm Corey Pine. This is News From Nowhere, formerly the top English language podcast in East India's Maoist country, now the last every other weekly podcast hosted by The Baffler magazine. What I'm saying is, this is the last episode that my friends at The Baffler will be hosting. If you subscribe via The Baffler cast feeds on SoundCloud or iTunes, you will need to move your pod thing, your podcast app, to the version linked at newsfromnowherepodcast.com. The show is going to be relaunching in mid-September. It's going to come out every week, but only for subscribers. There will be a free public show every month with highlights from the previous four episodes, but supporters will get the show as it comes out every week. I will be doing a Patreon if you use that website, and if you don't, there will be other less startup-y ways to kick in a little money to support my work here on the show and enjoy the interviews. I know people like the long conversational format. Subscriptions will be affordable, and if you can contribute more, there will be rewards, such as signed copies of my book out next year for Metropolitan Books. It's called Live, Work, 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 Die, A Journey into the Savage Heart of Silicon Valley. There will also be a class trader subscription tier that will come with a limited quantity of get out of re-education free cards. Again, those are limited quantities. Make sure you get yours before the revolution comes. Until the relaunch, I'm going to take a little vacation. Also, of course, I will be writing more for The Baffler now that the Silicon Valley book has finally flown off to the copy editor. Uh, In fact, I have a piece in the next print issue of The Baffler out very soon about immigration and customs enforcement's enormous prison just a couple of hours from where I'm living in Portland, Oregon. I'll talk about that in this week's interview segment as well. Anyway, many thanks to The Baffler for its sponsorship of this podcast. It is the only magazine of its kind. You should definitely subscribe. It's funny, sharp as fuck, and we'll take a flyer on weird shit like this show. Actually, you know, this show isn't weird. Uh, It's just me doing my job. But the interviews especially, that's what I've done professionally as a journalist. And it's harder and harder to find spaces where that sort of work is possible. And I mean just picking up the phone and talking to somebody that knows what they're talking about for an hour or two. You know, I started out in my teens in college writing about the George W. Bush administration. If you weren't yet conscious for that, yeah, it was bad. This is worse. You know, Bush revealed the extent of the rot in the U.S. Obama is like a bad landlord just trying to paint over the problem. And Trump is the bulldozer everyone who is paying attention knew was coming. There's so much bad shit happening now. People simply cannot cope. If you're listening to this, it means you're trying, like me, to cope, stand top of what's going on, figure out how to act. I'm not sure how much of our failure to apprehend this situation is due to soft censorship through corporate media consolidation and how much is due to the fact that there simply aren't enough working journalists to cover everything. It's hard to say. Some subjects, though, are definitely taboo, and that's worrisome. I was watching Game of Thrones, uh, the most incesty show on television, and thinking, you know, is the press going to talk about the president lusting after his own daughter? His own daughter who's in the White House for some reason and sitting in for him at international diplomacy? diplomatic meetings? Or is the press so weak that such topics are only addressed in fiction? The last journalist who brought this up, even in a jokey way, got forced out of her job at Politico. Anyway, uh, that's why independent media is so important today, so we can talk about presidential incest fantasies. Please support this show, newsfromnowherepodcast.com. And before the interview, I want to talk about another issue related to some previous discussions I've had with guests on this show, part of a larger debate about anti-fascist community organizing, aka Antifa, and whether it's counterproductive 
perspective. There has been some pretty heated debate between friends of this show. It would be overly simplistic to describe it as a debate that pits academics versus journalists, but there are questions of epistemology at play. The narrow question I'm talking about basically boils down to, is it helpful to attempt to describe the threat of right-wing fascist paramilitaries, street Nazis, in the USA right now? That is, how many Nazis are there and how dangerous are they? Was Charlottesville a one-off? I mean, we know it wasn't. There have been previous incidents, including here in Portland, this year. So we know it's not a one-off. But are these aberrations or a sign of some kind of deeper organization that's happening? Well, my take, when it comes to Nazis, I say it's better to err on the side of caution. You know, especially when people like the governor of Virginia are saying they found weapons caches around Charlottesville. There is a well-worn playbook for right-wing terror, and it sure seems like some people in the U.S. have been thumbing through it pretty extensively. Also on this point, it should not be an academic discussion. Like other reporters, I've seen these groups up close, I've investigated them to the extent that I can, and it's clear there is an increasing level of organization. Right-wing terrorists are emboldened because they have an ally in the White House, and the White House benefits from this terrorism because it is effective in shutting people up. In other words, in stifling dissent. So Steve Bannon and Sebastian Gorka are out of the White House, and that's nice, but the basic situation hasn't changed very much. Last week you had Roger Stone, another Trump advisor, openly suggesting that if Trump were impeached, members of Congress from either party who supported his removal would be putting their own lives at risk. He was suggesting, you know, just putting it out there, that lawmakers might be assassinated for opposing the president. A president whose legitimacy is dubious and whose dangerous lack of competence is crystal clear. So that's the reality. We shouldn't soft pedal it and we shouldn't try to wish it away. This is a show that began after the election of Trump with a rant from me. And I said I was sick of being called a hysterical pessimist by liberals who were completely wrong about what factors were at work in the 2016 election and how it was likely to turn out. They were also wrong about whether Trump meant it when he said, let's deport all the Muslims and on and on and on. Well, he meant it. It's the first policy he tried to enact. Now, when the president's advisors are all but threatening the lives of lawmakers and when he goes up in public and defends Nazi terrorists, maybe we should heed that lesson from 2016. They mean what they say. This is also a show that has for the past year aimed to encourage a united front against a threat from the far right. I mean, uniting liberals all the way over to tankies. Now, under that umbrella, there's plenty of room for debate on core values, but it's important that we stay focused on the threat because it is serious. This is about survival. Maybe you don't personally feel endangered by armed Nazis and insurrectionary militias. I say, you know, wait, see how that turns out. Even if you refuse to believe that these groups are dangerous, Consider how things are going to go with Trump and his coalition of techie fascists, ExxonMobil, and Goldman Sachs in charge. If they don't kill us fast, they'll kill us slow. They'll grind us down into penury, sickness, exile, or captivity. Speaking of captivity, that's a good segue to my guest this week. I'll be talking to Andrea Pitzer, author of a new book out in September. It's called One Long Night, A Global History of Concentration Camps. Andrea is a writer for Slate and Lapham's Quarterly, among other places, and she's the founder of Neiman Storyboard, which is a narrative nonfiction site housed at Harvard's Neiman Foundation for Journalism. Hey, Andrea, this is Corey. Hey, Corey, how are you? Good. Let me just start with maybe the, the most annoying question that any author can get asked, but why did you want to write this book about concentration camps? Well, this is great because I know sometimes authors don't always have an answer for this, but I have an answer, and the answer is that I have written the book that I wanted to read when I was researching my first book, which was a kind of a geopolitical biography of Vladimir Nabokov, the guy who wrote Lolita. And 
one of the things that came up were sort of a lot of open and hidden references to concentration camps. And I thought, oh, I hadn't really thought about that they predated, you know, the Nazi camps and they predated the Gulag in Russia. Um, they had, you know, existed under that name before that time. And I knew just a very tiny bit about it, but I needed to know more. And I had looked for some kind of general audience history of how the idea of a concentration camp emerged and how it changed over time. And there was one French book uh, in French that I read that was uh, an encyclopedia sort of approach to that idea, but even it didn't cover some places and times. And so before I finished my first book, I had a pretty good idea that this was the next book that I wanted to write. When you were researching this book that you'd wished you had, uh, some of the best sources you found, uh, you know, apart from interviewing survivors when, when possible, some of these sources were both propagandistic and accurate or truthful. I think that might be a hard idea for people to get their head around. So could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Sure. It was hard for me to get my head around too, because you know, I come out of the journalistic side of things, and that's the writing that I've done. Um, and the idea that something could be propaganda and still carry useful information or perhaps be the only source of information in some cases was difficult to begin to think about. But I'll give you some examples that will make apparent why it could still be useful. Um, you know, the Germans, long before the Nazi party came to be, were in Southwest Africa where they had a colony and uh, effectively tried to carry out a genocide um, on the Nama and Herrera people there. And there were some outcries in the Reichstag, and there was some political opposition that did emerge at various points, but it was really quite far away. And after the worst abuses appeared to have been dealt with, which was the open call to genocide had been sort of rescinded, there wasn't necessarily a ton of information or attention being paid. So after World War I, however, the British were very motivated after defeating the Germans in the war and not having them uh, be able to maintain that presence in Southwest Africa and suggesting that they weren't a responsible colonial, you know, or imperial power. And as a result, they went and did pretty thorough interviews and investigations with people in that area. And while they had a chip on their shoulder and were certainly prejudiced in the sources that they talked to, in other words, they left some things out that were less advantageous, they included, they reproduced actually in the report, in the Blue Book report, photos of people who had been whipped, uh, and I mean whipped extensively, with scarred backs and open wounds on their backs and the shackles that had been used to hold people and the kind of things that are, that are real historical evidence. And so part of the job of writing this book was attending to how to weigh that, trying to weigh the, the actual physical evidence and the historical pieces while recognizing that, of course, the British were going to pick the worst things to be able to report. Um, but they weren't making things. Uh, in other cases, there were sources and other points in time that were propaganda that were making things up, and I just didn't use those. But really, a lot of the reporting on camps has been done by enemy nations who then find them. Um, you think about the U.S. reports on Nazi camps, you know, that's a parallel kind of situation. Um, and certainly, we had no interest in making the Nazis look good at that point, And it was this unparalleled atrocity in human history, but that's really good and reliable stuff, you know, and there were British press corps too that were involved in the production of that blue book that were also doing some good work. One of the strengths of the book, I think, is that uh, because of your approach, you spare no one, essentially. There's a couple of chapters on Germany, but there, you also look at uh, the British in South Africa, uh, Spanish in Cuba, uh, the Russian gulags, uh, and on and on, all the way to Guantanamo Bay. And one way that you described concentration camps, really 
really stuck with me. You likened it to the atom bomb as like one of the rare, genuine innovations in violence in modern times. And you talk about them being continuously in existence for over a hundred years and coming with uh, the era of factories and public schools. So was it technological and economic developments uh, as well as military developments that caused the creation of the concentration camp? Talk a little bit about the conditions that enabled this phenomenon. I think it's a little bit less economic, but I would definitely say yes on technology and also on sort of social and cultural settings. Technology is particularly important because you had a lot of things before the first sort of iteration of concentration camps, which is in the mid-1890s in Cuba, which was really a sort of a pushing of the peasants into the fringe areas right around the cities, um, which were then surrounded in barbed wire because there was a rebellion going on, which some people do or don't count as true concentration camp. I did because that's where the phrase first emerges as, you know, this way to for the military to house civilians. And I think it fits in other ways as well. But there are, before that period, things that look an awful lot like concentration camps in many ways. Everything from forced labor in China and ancient Rome to Russian penal labor under the czars before the revolution. And also in Native American reservations, the Spanish mission systems. You know, there are many things that are getting close to that kind of idea, but it's not quite set in stone. And technology is really the thing that makes that happen. And the two pieces of technology that make it possible to sort of evolve, if evolve is even the right word to use, into concentration camps are first barbed wire, which was developed mid-century, but patented, uh, I don't remember the exact year, but it was in the 1870s, and really quickly came into mass distribution after that. My recollection of the history is it was developed for cattle on the U.S. frontier. Right. It was a, yeah, it was a frontier innovation, if you will, and that was where it found a lot of its first applications and a lot of its first patent holders. But governments got interested in it very quickly as uh, potential use in warfare was something that came up. And uh, later, shortly after those first concentration camps are formed in the Spanish-American War, it becomes a really critical piece of well, weaponry isn't quite the right word, but it is certainly part of battle strategy. And you can't have a whole brace of horses charging pell-mell into barbed wire. Uh, and so it really did change things like cavalry approaches and how things were defended very quickly. But what it also allowed was where before there in history, there had been lots of times where whole groups were pushed out of a territory or people were exiled or Native Americans were made to cross, you know, half the continent to get to reservations. What hadn't necessarily been easy before was to keep people there or to keep them away. But once you have barbed wire, getting out of that quickly becomes much more difficult. It's not just like a wall you can jump. And so that kind of fortification made it easier to hold a lot of people in a fixed space that they didn't necessarily want to be in. And then the second technological innovation that buttressed that barbed wire was the wide production of automatic weapons. And by the turn of the century, you do have militaries using them on a widespread basis. They didn't come into play quite so much in Cuba. You saw them a little, but they became decisive soon after. And it, it became apparent that with barbed wire to sort of loosely contain people in a space and just a few guards with automatic weapons, suddenly the idea of holding several people prisoner or 
or in detention in one place, which normally would have taken a lot of guards, even with barbed wire, suddenly you need you, you only need a few people to hold a, a much larger mass. So it's the, the, the concurrence of those two technological innovations grafted onto some pre-existing ideas that sort of sparked together at this very moment in Cuba in the 1890s to make this thing possible. And then once it's possible, it takes on a lot of different forms. And that's one thing I want to make clear up front is sometimes people say concentration camps, you know, you're putting in World War One internment camps with the Nazis and with everything else. And, and I think that the answer is, yes, I am doing that. But the reason I'm doing that is because that's what the idea was to start with. The idea to start with was something very different, definitely related, but very different than what the Nazi camps turned into. And so I think it's hard for us from our vantage point of today to look back at history and concentration camps and see anything but Auschwitz, because, you know, these horrors are sort of still so towering and so unfathomable. And that's why it was important to me to actually start at the beginning and see how do we get to that point rather than looking backwards sort of through the lens of history as much as possible to see when did this idea emerge and then move forward with it as it changed. So technology was definitely part of that picture, but also the social constructs. Um, you know, it's tempting to see things as all good or all bad. And we look back at things like public health innovations and sanitation, and these were great for disease prevention. They were great for a lot of things, but they did also begin to promote the idea that the government should be having a say-so in particularly with poor people or with uh, undesirable groups, with managing those people and sort of there rose a eugenic movement in America that looked at whether these people should be weeded from the gene pool. Uh, and so this idea of segregating a group of people for the benefit, the health benefit or the moral benefit of the larger community, as if that were a disease, as if literally, if you go back and look, as if deafness and poverty and blindness were communicable diseases. You know, these were some of the very factors that people were institutionalized on in the U.S. And, and I think it was part of a larger movement that made concentration camps not not seem so strange to them as, you know, at that time as they do to us now. But this public health idea of protecting the larger population from some dangerous or infected group of people. I want to talk about the Nazi example later, but the point you just made sets up something I wanted to, to ask you about, about that specific example. People didn't necessarily run or fight as hard as they might have uh, because, uh, as you put it, many of them regarded concentration camps as something familiar. It had happened in the First World War and uh, there was sort of a belief that uh, you resign yourself to this and then you'll get let out when the war is over. Yeah, I think World War One. there have been a lot of attempts to tie the early colonial camps directly. And by those, I mean the Spanish camps in Cuba, unfortunately, the American camps soon after in the Philippines when we got that as a colony, um, the British in South Africa and the Germans in Southwest Africa. Uh, those were the sort of first colonial camp systems that were set up. And a lot of people have tried to connect those directly to the gulag or to the Nazi camps. And I don't think there's as much basis for that. Certainly there's little echoes and things that are linked there. But I think how you get from one to the other is really this important moment in World War One, where this idea that it wasn't entirely dormant, but a lot of people realized it hadn't gone well. This running of concentration camps that was dangerous, that tremendous numbers of people would die, even if you weren't trying to kill them off. Because at the, at the early stages, they were really more for detention. And so the deaths came through starvation and disease of poor sanitation and not enough food and a lot of people without resources crammed into a small space. Um, so it's important to say that was sort of what they were up front. Nonetheless, a lot of people died in them. So th the idea really fell into disfavor on a 
widespread basis. But the temptation when World War I broke out, there was really a tremendous amount of spy hysteria. And so a lot of laws that were originally put forth with the idea they would be used against uh, enemy aliens, which, which are people you know who are born in or citizens of the opposing power in a wartime situation. These enemy alien laws had always been very strong. It was understood that countries could kind of do whatever they wanted with these people in wartime. You needed to be able to protect your country. But those laws had been exercised most mostly against people who are actually members of the military of that opposing country, or they were suspected to be spies for some specific reason. But what you had happen in World War I, for a number of different reasons, probably the most important of which was that universal conscription had started. So if you were military age male, you were likely to end up fighting in battle. So that made a whole group of people suspect in a way that they hadn't necessarily been before, but also a lot of spy paranoia and social anxiety that was drummed up on a number of fronts created a real panic. And so for the first time, those laws were used on a widespread basis by nearly every country engaged in the war to arrest people who were citizens of the opposing you know, belligerents. So if you were a German who was in England and war broke out, then suddenly you become suspect, even if you're a civilian, even if you have no ties to the military, even if you've lived there as a grocer for 30 years, suddenly you, this category of enemy alien took on a, a much stronger cast than it had had before, in part also because of the anti-immigration legislation that had been sounding this growing drumbeat, particularly in, in England at the time. But it, this happened not just in England, but also in Germany, later in the U.S. to a smaller degree, and dozens of countries ended up locking people up. So you went from this idea of concentration camps being almost defunct to being on six continents around the globe in just the space of World War One. And so what that ends up setting up is that every country that's involved in this has a bureaucracy of detention. They understand how to lock civilians up. They have a protocol for it. People go and register. They turn themselves in. And there were a lot of reports of abuse and mistreatment. And certainly some of that did occur on areas that were traded back and forth like on the French-German lines and things like that. I don't want to minimize that some people suffered terribly, particularly from starvation. But for the most part, many of these camps were far from any battlefield at all. They were in downtown London. They were on the Isle of Man. They were in, you know, in Georgia, in the United States. Uh, and it became normal to doubt a group of people that was seen as suspicious and lock them up until... Uh, to use Trump's phrase about the Muslim ban, you know, till you know what's going on or till you figure yeah. out what's going on. That just became what people did. And unlike those early colonial camps, you didn't have more than 100,000 people dying. You know, it was, it, was a, it was a very small number of people. And so for the most part, people who let themselves be locked away were released. And I don't want to suggest that people didn't know Nazi camps were bad when they started, because there were terrible rumors from the very beginning, about, especially about places like Dachau. But the baseline expectation of concentration camps had been set. And I think it was that filter through which people kept seeing them, even if they would hear of bad situations, probably initially didn't sound that much worse than the bad situations they had heard rumors of and atrocities they'd heard rumors of during World War One. So I think the world and, and even people internally were slow to sort of fathom the full horror, because of course the Nazis would take camps in a, a much more more extreme direction than anyone had so far. As you point out, uh, so many countries found this useful that there was an opportunity to ban concentration camps into the laws of war at the Hague Conventions, but that opportunity was rejected. Well, yes. So it's just a really terrible moment of timing, which is that these international, the first sort of sit down international agreements on laws of war 
there had been some a couple decades earlier, but this was the, the Hague was the first widespread one. And they were making rules about you can't throw bombs out of hot air balloons and things that sound, you know, anachronistic and weird and impossible now for us to think about, but were very pressing then that they did deal with the idea that concentration camps perhaps should be included uh, was rejected. And unfortunately, that was used very quickly uh, to justify the imposition of those camps. Um, you know, it was one of the things that people said, well, the Hague had a chance to deny it. So maybe it must be a reasonable thing to do. Um, that was used very early on as, as justification. And still some people tried, threatened, I don't know if they actually did bring it, but tried to bring it um, or threatened to bring it before the Hague for consideration that this kind of treatment was unacceptable. But part of the problem was was that a lot of these laws of war were looked at with a view toward combatants and not, uh, you know, not executing POWs, not starving them to death, you know, these kinds of conditions. And so there wasn't a really great way to look at civilians in that period, or if you were going to detain civilians, what would that look like? And so it sort of became this hole into which uh, civilians fell. Really, it wasn't addressed fully until 1949, after World War II had ended. You know, this distinction of civilians and combatants sort of goes back to the beginning of the colonial origins of concentration camps. And it was really effective the way you wrote about how this was a military innovation designed to tackle a special problem, and that was the problem of popular resistance to an imperial authority, in this case, the Spanish and Cuba. It made me think if it's the if it's the freedom of a guerrilla-style army that makes it so effective, you know, that obviously the counter is to deprive them of that freedom uh, and the people who support them, so you round up the civilians. But that made me think, what? so what's the um, effect effective resistance to uh, concentration camps? Is it simply to run faster? <laughs> what do you think? I mean, I... I well, I want to be careful here. So I'm going to preface whatever I say, which I'm still thinking of with that. That's not part of my book, and I wouldn't say that's my area of expertise. So I'm going to throw out a couple thoughts, but that's a really difficult question. And I think particularly today, in which our firepower and surveillance of government entities and intelligence agencies is so much more extensive than it was 100 years ago when these started, that um, I think the kind of resistance you're talking about, you know, may or may not be possible, which is kind of scary to think about at this stage. Um, you know, perhaps in, I'm trying to think of huge and remote countries like China, you know, would have great difficulty. Right. But in, in other places, and that's not to say that underground networks would never form that. I mean, certainly all those things have happened in urban areas during World War II. You had Polish resistance, you had French resistance. But today, you know, there really is so much more ability to trace people that I think it would become very different, a very different, very difficult battle. And I think it's really incumbent on us as a result. And this is part of why I spent so much time on Guantanamo in the last chapter of the book to see the warning signs. And these guys couldn't know in 1896 everything that would follow. But even back then, I don't know if you remember, but before the general who was named the butcher came in and was happy to implement the concentration camps, the idea had originated even sooner with a general who refused to implement them because he said this was going to bring misery and horror. And that's not the exact quote, but that's what he effectively what These he are the saying. Spanish colonial officers you're referring exactly, to. Exactly. The Spanish colonial officers, a guy who realized this is what we're going to have to do to defeat the rebel Cubans here to herd them all into these areas and off the countryside, but it's going to be awful. There's going to be hunger and misery. And as a representative of a civilized country, I won't do it. And so he was called home and they sent in a guy named the butcher who wasn't his idea to do it, but he was more than happy to do it. And so I think the answer for me would be when you see the seeds of something unprincipled in these same ways that moves extrajudicially, you know, outside of, and, and that's a kind of a funky term. And I tried to be careful with how I used it in the book because 
not all these countries that these things happened in were democracies or functioning democracies, even where they were democracies. But I tried to look at extrajudicial civilian detention, meaning people who in their own country were somehow not treated in the normal process of law that would have happened in daily life, that something special was done. Um, emergency legislation was passed or courts were uh, disbanded. You know, something happened to override whatever was their normal functioning legal system in order to set up a special way to detain civilians without trial. So I think it's incumbent on us that it would be so much harder to resist in this day and age, the formation of these kinds of things. I think, you know, if you're a journalist or if you're an advocate or if you're a legislator, if you're somebody who has a, a role in forming society or um, motivating them, then to respond to these things at an early stage is critical. And I think that mass critical early response is probably key. And while it's not, you know, I'm a journalist, it's not my job to tell people what they ought to do necessarily. I do see my job as giving people information, particularly about things that haven't gone historically well, so that they'll be able to judge for themselves. And to me, we can talk more about Guantanamo later, if you like, but that, you know, falls into that basket. I It smells like some of the early things in the camp smells in terms of the potential for setting precedent for kinds of detention that really aren't what exist in the country normally. Let's just jump ahead to Guantanamo now, because um, I did want to talk to you about it. And I want to talk about my little visit to a uh, big ice uh, prison up in Tacoma, Washington. Uh, for a story of the in the forthcoming baffler. But you went to Guantanamo and, and, and visited on a press tour and you saw something that wasn't supposed to happen that, w- that you found very revealing. Maybe that's a good way. Right. I went twice, both in February 2015, which was a really interesting moment because this was still more than a year before the presidential election, which I think has really changed Guantanamo's status and situation a lot. Um, when I was there, Barack Obama had spoken openly against it and said, this is not who we are. We need to find a way to close it. And there are a lot of arguments over whether he attended to that as much as he should have or spent the capital that he should have. You know, th- there's a lot of back and forth around that. I don't feel qualified to speak a lot of, on. But but the idea was that administration wanted it closed. And that wasn't happening. Congress was not interested in that. But that, that was the official White House position. And so it was kind of very much a between states thing to be there because that base was established in 1898 during the Spanish-American War, which we entered in part because of the concentration camps that existed in Spain at the time. Americans were horrified by this. The pictures coming out of them and the, the stories were just unbelievable. They were really horrific. So we landed at Guantanamo in that war and we've never left. So that base has existed a really long time. And the the detention facility, which is in sort of an adjunct to that base. Camp Justice. Exactly. Um, well, there's the larger whole detention facility, and then there's Camp Justice, which is the, uh, you know, where these trials are happening, uh, or are going to happen. Right. Important point. The name Camp Justice. I mean, isn't that just proof that we're an evil empire? So Orwellian. Well, I think that it's, here's my thing, and there's actually a little hope in it. Um, I think our idea of ourselves is that we really are doing the right thing. And I think that, if anything, saves us. Uh, Sometimes it lulls us into complacency and to to the evil empire side of things, for sure. But I think also um, that can be appealed to and that can be a tremendous motivator to Americans if they they do understand what's actually going on. So I I think the camp name being that is terribly ironic in our current circumstances. But I try to look to the the hopeful side of of how that could be used to talk about it. And but at any rate, I I went in February 2015 and then in March 2015 because they wouldn't do uh, the pretrial hearings. You can't visit the detention sites 
when you're there for a pretrial hearing. You have to do those two things completely separate. And so I had to make two trips, which was fine. You know, I wanted to see it more. I would have gone five trips if I had been able to do it and write the rest of the book. Um, one of them was to see the 9-11-5, you know, the, the people who are suspected of conspiring to aid the hijackers that attacked the Pentagon and the World Trade Centers and ended up also crashing in the field in Pennsylvania. And so I was present for a few days for that. And then I went back in March of 2015 and went to the facility. And in some ways, it's, you know, it's important to note it it is a different thing than the Nazi camps, Chinese forced labor camps, you know, for all these things. If you have a press pat, if you have a press identity, you're affiliated with an organization or like me, you are writing a book, they will let you come there. You know, they will let you see, you know, quite a bit. Um, So to that degree, there is an openness that we wouldn't have seen from certainly from some of the worst historical camp systems. However, it's a very managed experience and you're not interacting with any of the detainees. You are allowed to see the things that they want to show you. uh, And everybody rotates in and out quite frequently because military tours are much, much shorter than the lifespan of Guantanamo. So they've had you know, thousands of people coming through guarding and running things. And and I'm sure that they have records and they trade notes. But the truth is that anybody who's there at any given moment that's taking you around as a member of the press doesn't know a lot of the history. And some of it they probably wouldn't tell you if they did or wouldn't be allowed to tell you, but they they actually don't know it. And so it's it's a very surreal experience to be going around. There are a few people, uh, journalists that have been coming. They don't let the human rights group and the non-governmental organizations do some of the things that they allow the press to do. So while some of those groups have been involved from the beginning, they haven't necessarily gotten to see how the detention has changed over time. All these other things that some members of the press who have been coming for years, I'm thinking of Carol Rosenberg from Miami Herald, right? Exactly, who has been on the beat since literally the first guys came off the plane there. Um, You know, they really have become these receptacles of public memory because there's no other continuous account. I mean, the lawyers who've been representing, many of them have been on the case almost from the beginning as well, and they've certainly seen things inside. They're very restricted about what they can do. So in terms of saying publicly, you know, they have to think of their clients' representation first. And so, you know, it's this weird puzzle game where you're trying to get as many pieces as you can to have a full picture. And I think it's almost impossible to get that. So, you know, you don't want to report incomplete information, but also there's no way to get complete information. We were allowed to look through two-way glass at the public area of the prison, the detention site in which people were allowed to live communally because they had basically been behaving. And so I saw a couple detainees flitting in and out of that and other than that, we were kept, for, and, and that was with the lights out. And we could only do it while they had the lights out on our side because they didn't want those guys seeing us and trying to get our attention. So it's, it's very stage managed. Um, they show you the library from which they don't go, but they can request books um, or video games or magazines. Um, prisoners who are on good behavior would have pretty ready access to a lot of that stuff. And um, they would show you the halal kitchen, you know, where the, the supplies are kept separate from the general population supplies as they were, you know, as they would cook the food. Uh, they would show you all these different pieces of it that, again, are not made up. Those are real. And I think a lot of Americans would be surprised to know that the people at Guantanamo have access to video games and they have access to all this other stuff. So they're showing you the best part and that they're now not in chain link cages. They are in what look like modern buildings that are actually modeled, in fact, architectural plans modeled on prisons that exist in America uh, on the mainland. And um, so all it's legitimate to report on all that because it's all real. But it's this whole, it, it would be as if you were writing Moby Dick 
and you were showing the knots and you were showing the anchors and all the things he goes into such great, great detail about in these interstitial chapters, but you're kind of missing right. the characters themselves. You know, you don't get that other stuff, which is we don't talk to the detainees. And, you know, they're in this weird nebulous category between one commander did slip at one point and just called them terrorists to me. Most of the time, people were very cautious to call them detainees and say well, they haven't been convicted of anything yet. But of course, many of them have been there for more than a decade. And so uh, it was a very bizarre experience. And we were outside and we were going to interview the head of the Joint Task Force there that was in charge of this detention side of the base. Um, some other journalists were there with me. And unexpectedly, a detainee was walked from one building to another. And uh, it was a very bizarre moment because he shouted hello in English to us and seemed really happy to see us. And he looked, he looked kind of between like a, um, you know, I think in the book, he looks kind of like a bedraggled prophet, but there was also something a little comic about it because it was so much the opposite of everything that had happened so far. It would be this comic moment where, you know, everyone, if it were a sitcom, everyone would have been trying to keep us from seeing these people like the whole, and then it would accidentally happen, um, you know, right in the middle of it, this guy would be paraded through. It just really underlined that we were seeing all of these things, but we actually didn't know the first thing about the people who had experienced this stuff. So it is as if at the heart of the whole system here that's built with, I mean, an unbelievable amount of money for each of these detainees every year uh, and thousands of personnel and, and, you know, Pentagon spokespeople and all this other stuff that it's, there's this, still this unknowable thing at the center that we couldn't get to. And here it was sort of handed to us, but just for a moment. And, and I had said to one of the public affairs people afterward, like, oh, I should have taken a picture. Like, I can't believe I didn't do that. But it was just such a shock. It was really bad journalist instincts on my part. He's like, I would have had to delete it anyway, was his answer. And in fact, even to get on the island, we'd had to sign a 15-page, actually, I don't remember if it was 15 pages. That's my memory. But it was many pages and initial all these different parts about things we would agree not to do. And one of it was to try to communicate with detainees if we encountered any. And, and, And so that does underline that you know, the whole thing is a bit of a Potemkin village. What was the penalty, out of curiosity? Well, they would de- they would delete it. I mean, I'm sure they would yeah. have confiscated the... the I mean, you, you know, you're there. It, you, there's nowhere... It's not like you would flee with the photos into the desert or something, you know? If you said hello back to that guy and asked him a question, I mean, that's an attempt to communicate. Was there some punishment uh, for, for violating the terms? Or? I would... I, I, I'm speculating here, of course, but I bet you that, that you would be put on a plane home. Yeah. That's what my guess would be. I mean, you wouldn't be locked up or anything. So I wrestled with this problem reporting the, the piece that's coming out on the baffler on the Immigration and Customs Enforcement prison in Tacoma. I didn't go inside, but I thought, because I thought in my dealings with ICE PR, you know, their their spin is second to none. And I, I knew that anything that I saw would be only because they wanted to show me. So I decided it might compromise my account in some way. You know, the stuff that uh, people were who were on the inside, uh, the, the, the word that they were able to get out through family, visitors, lawyers, seemed to be more important and probably truthful than about the conditions and whatever I would, would see on a kind of Potemkin tour. But, you know, there is that impulse to see for yourself as a journalist. So Well, I think it's that's a really important question. And there have been people that got down there and realized how limited it was and refused to participate. I can't remember the name, but there was one woman. I just thought that was great. Like, that's a statement about those conditions as well. You know what I mean? Like, that's another way to respond. My thought was, and, and people might differ, and, and I would be fine with that because I think your approach is 100% valid as well. But my hope was, and, and I think I was able to do this, I hope I was able to do this, is that the sort of machinery of this kind of detention is so big and so reminiscent 
of other systems I had seen that they would essentially be revealing its nature no matter what they showed me. Yeah. Because I was looking at it as a systemic thing. So I also covered in earlier chapters, you'll remember the, the ways in which camps were covered up um, yes. when journalists came knocking. And, and again, I'm not equating Guantanamo Bay with Auschwitz or the Nazi camp system. It's really important. I think each of these things has their own identity, their own potential for, you know, uh, malice. It's really important not to conflate them all together because over time things are changing and they are different, but there are these common roots. However, if you go back and look, the Nazis actually let a New York Times reporter and a Times of London reporter into the early camps at Oranienburg and at Dachau in an effort to show that they weren't mistreating people. And it was all stage managed. And, yes. you know, and, so, uh, and we know, in fact, already that people who are at Guantanamo were tortured under the auspices uh, I mean, what I would call torture, what I suspect you would call torture, what I suspect most Americans would agree on as torture under the auspices of U.S. government agencies and under their control um, in black sites overseas. Uh, to a degree at Guantanamo, although many of them had their worst torture before they came there. And so since I'm not talking necessarily only about what's happening in this moment there, I'm talking about its whole career, we already know that. So I'm visiting sites where these things have happened. So I already have that piece of the puzzle. You know, for me, it was important to go and how they wanted to present that, given what we already know, is part of the story for me, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the most important takeaways from your book is how the way things start is not necessarily how they wind up, you know. Yeah, and, and I don't, I don't, I do believe that America is not Nazi Germany. I mean, so for anybody, or, or that um, Chile and Argentina, and I mean, I cover so many different systems in the book, you know, Kenya, um, I don't think people are going in, how can I destroy people? How can I do something evil? I mean, that's not where people go into it in most cases. Now, by the time you get to the, you know, the last stage of Nazi camps, that's sort of unavoidably where you are. But in most camp systems, that's, it's very different. It doesn't start that way and it doesn't end there either. But the malice and the damage that happens is often, um, it's a side dish to what was the intention of what happened. And, and that's one of the biggest things I want to say with the book is that in many places that are the camps people haven't heard of before, they'll see that they were used in the wake of some crisis. You know, they were used to address some real problem, but they tended to make a crisis that was much huger than the instigating uh, event. And so I fear post 9-11, we turned to this situation that morally and legally problematic, and we may end up creating something that dwarfs that in the long run. And so camps end up going, those first Spanish camps, they weren't planning to kill people off. You know, they were, they wanted them out of the countryside so they could defeat the rebels. But what they did to them killed more people than died on the battlefield. It killed apparently more than 10% of the population of the island at that time. It's, I mean, that's unbelievable. They weren't even trying to do that. It was, it was you know, they, they weren't super concerned about it when it started happening. They were focused on their war uh, footing and what they needed to do to win that. So even though they, they knew some of the things that were happening, it didn't, they didn't reverse the decision. But the initial thing they went into it with was not a plan to kill all the Cuban peasants. But that's where they ended up. You also write about the early Soviet camps uh, it being, you described it as a museum of intelligentsia. You know, they had newspapers and uh, really was some kind of re-education camp in a sense, but also... Uh... Well, and it was also a, it was a Potemkin village too, because yeah. don't forget that Europe had a huge number of communists and socialists, and they initially saw themselves as part of this, you know, the Bolshevik revolution, this enterprise and this vast experiment that was going to save humanity and, and save workers. And it was going to be a beautiful, I mean, you know, there was a lot of idealism among huge swaths of that group. Now, there are many who were more mercenary right from the start as well, but there was a lot of idealism. And then suddenly 
you have people who had been revolutionaries under the Tsars being arrested by, you know, before the official Soviet government, it was the Bolsheviks that were just running it before the Soviet Union was actually founded. But, you know, in both cases, you had people who had been in prison before and had fought for years against the Tsars that were being locked up. And they were getting letters to the outside and and Europe and the U.S. had a smaller contingent, but particularly European leftists and radicals were horrified. This isn't what the the bright revolutionary future was supposed to be, locking up their peers and their opponents. You know, that's that wasn't the plan, and uh, but it very quickly went that way, and so and I think to a degree there was this real idea they would re-educate them. I think that there was a real kernel to that 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 many people believed that's what would really happen. I would say it's definitely a minority of people who are doing it, but but it, there was an idealism to that piece still. But for many more people, it was that they needed to show the outside world that they weren't monsters, and they needed to prove that this was a beneficent experiment. And the only way to lock up all those people and do it was to do things like sometimes let them have a theater, sometimes film them. You know, the same kind of propaganda we were just talking about. And once Stalin hit on the idea of turning them into labor camps, that sort of to develop the infrastructure of the Soviet Union, that created a tremendous incentive to expand them, didn't it? It's all kind of built on this weird lie that he didn't invent it, certainly, uh, because there were traditions of using quotas for food and output of labor and, and for a long time in penal situations. But there's a man named Naftali Frankel who was first a prisoner and then was so enthusiastic he became a guard and then ended up actually on that first most famous re-education camp that they built in the early 20s, Solovki. He came up with this idea of tying you know, food rations to your labor output in a way that would be an economic juggernaut. And that part of it was kind of new. Um, and again, I'm sure that the idea had other authors, but he's kind of become the godfather of it in history. And so there was this idea that it was going to pay for itself, you know, that it was going to, that this was going to modernize Soviet Russia and pay for itself. And that's when you transition from the Soviet camp to the actual formation of what was officially the gulag. And it was this idea uh, that people would do this labor to sort of do penance and reenter society. And in the meantime, they would be an economic force that would build the Soviet state. But it was never a smart economic setup. And so it actually was, and, and this was true in China as well, it was actually disastrous to take that approach. And while they did build some tremendous monuments that are still functional, despite this horrific history, some roads and some different things, it's, you know, as an economic system, uh, uh, this kind of penal labor is, is not generally seen as useful. Well, and, and capitalism produced its own variants of, of those perverse incentives, didn't it? I mean, you write about a company in Pittsburgh called Oliver Brothers that supplied millions of pounds of barbed wire to the Spanish in Cuba. Right. So the U.S. was in an interesting point. Um, we were neutral in the during that Spanish rebellion, although there were lots of debates, there were lots of sympathies for the uh, Cuban rebels and all that. But we would have American companies sort of running guns uh, to the rebels in filibustero expeditions, which was technically illegal, but there was a lot of it going on, um, while other companies like Oliver Brothers in Pittsburgh were doing contracts with the Spanish government for barbed wire to reinforce these cities and trap all these peasants. So capitalism has certainly worked its own side of the equation. And even the camps I went into in Myanmar, uh, which used to be known as Burma, which are open today and still holding, uh, there's been a lot of violence there recently, so the number's gone down. But when I was there, they were still holding more than 144,000 Rohingya Muslims, basically in complete segregation from the rest of society. There was still a, a black market, and because people who were outside those camps would run supplies in and out if there was enough money. And so one of the things that's 
kind of horrific, but um, wonderful is not the right word. But no matter how much you try to close these people off, it's, it's impossible. So there's a little hope, I think, that camps have always been like a little bit permeable. Sometimes like it's for bad reasons, but governments that think that they're going to isolate these people forever, it doesn't end up happening generally that way. There's the public pressure, international opprobrium, just different things come into play. And sometimes it's just that black market for goods that does allow some of those things to happen. Now, the downside of that is, in this case, that you get traffickers getting people out of the camps, but but often taking horrible advantage of them, everything from rape to holding them hostage once they have them outside the camps and making their families who might be elsewhere pony up huge sums before they release them. So you end up in that case with, you know, the upside of the black market is that some of the people in the camps can still get things from outside that they wouldn't otherwise, like a solar panel um, to charge electrical things, which is really useful. But the downside is, you know, that you have this horrible human trafficking problem, which we're still seeing going on today. You know, I saw that in my reporting in the ICE facility at some of the way that information comes in and out. One of the reasons I bring that up in the context of this conversation at concentration camps is um, I talked to a sociologist from Guatemala who had visited the, the ICE camp up in Tacoma, and he described it as a concentration camp. I mean, it stuck with me for obvious reasons, because nobody wants to think of it in those terms. But the more I thought about it, you know, every argument I had against that description sort of fell away. And I revisited that after reading your book. Uh, you define it in terms of an extra-legal system. And Guantanamo certainly started out that way. I mean, 10 years on, 15 years on? Uh, can we still describe it as extra legal? And the thing with the ICE uh, facilities, I mean, immigration law has a lot of problems, as anyone who practices it will detail to you uh, at length. One of those problems is that people can uh, go for years and years without any kind of movement on their cases in these places. In, in that sense, it, it seems to fit your definition, at least in, in my mind, because these people aren't receiving proper uh, justice. I deliberately didn't go too far. I mentioned that briefly in my book. I tried, this was such a poorest thing sometimes that I, I put some boundaries around it um, because my publisher wanted 100,000 words initially and I wrote 150,000. So I knew I couldn't get away with much more. So I tried to cut where I could. And one thing I would say, though, just on the immigration and the ice front is I think that there's two things. It is different than Guantanamo, but it, but there are some similarities that I think are worth thinking about in that you have hunger strikes, you have issues with medical care, you have complaints of abuse, and the whole system often, and, and this is what you'll hear from immigration attorneys, but also if you just look at it from the outside, there are times that these issues were handled in different ways, and there have been cases and situations in which we have seen different areas handle them in other ways. And, and so it seems to me in the interviews and the reading that I've done that there are at certain points, and we are in one of those points now, um, what seem to be like an arranged attempt to create a sort of a punitive wall uh, against significant numbers of people who haven't been convicted of anything, that to try to get into the country or um, to be caught then snares you in this thing that is deliberately made so unpleasant as an attempt to discourage other people from doing what you are doing, um, that that malice is not even necessarily directed at the person who's arrested, but is a systemic attempt to make the whole experience so punitive that other people won't engage in it. And I think that parallels, um, you know, we had talking, been talking another time briefly uh, about Calais and these refugee camps that have happened. And I think that 
you know, you can have a similar situation arise there, which is, you know, like realistically, borders are a real thing, you know, and it's true that a country just can't let everyone in all the time and provide some kind of infinite assistance. I mean, you know, that's a truth. But I've talked to people at international aid groups and non-governmental aid organizations who also see the danger of the world allowing a country to be able to deport whole, you know, sectors of people from its residents at will, even if they were able to find homes elsewhere. So even if there were countries that you could just send people to, if they magically went to Calais and were transported to England and could join there, that that will empower countries to push people that they don't want out. And they can say, look, they've got a place to go. And so there are all kinds of reasons to discourage um, if that's the way that democracies choose to go to discourage certain kinds of transnational behavior or encourage other kinds. And I think realistically, as long as we have borders, we're going to have something like that. The problem with both of these things at heart, and I'll add one thing in a second to it, but the the main problem with both of these setups is that the most vulnerable people in the world are the ones who are getting punished as a result of this. So while people are saying, oh, but we're going to discourage immigration, or we're going to discourage refugees from coming here, or we're going to do this, and here are the good reasons that we want to discourage that. The people who are getting punished are not the broader abstract concept you're trying to underline. It's a very specific group. And I think personally, this is another reason why it's so dangerous to drop the kind of humanitarian and pressure on other nations that you know Tillerson has said that the US is no longer going to be doing because we know that if there's freer hand given and you know and there's no pressure not to do these things that there'll be targeted detention and abuses in other countries which is just going to create more immigration and refugee issues over time so it's it's a short term policy that's going to create a longer term bigger issue of these things that we have now i want to go back to the ice detentions though and say that um, i think that the US is in a very strange and not good position because what we've effectively done is economically we require this immigrant workforce like our economy requires it and is built on it and in order to function smoothly needs these immigrant populations here so aside from the moral issues just functionally um, they're necessary and we have created therefore a whole class of classless people so it's not the same as stripping citizenship from people within your own borders but it's a weird situation in which we essentially have a whole subset of stateless people living here. And while it may be legal to act against them, we have created over decades, um, over a century, you could say, but particularly, I think, post-World War II, um, a situation in which the economy is dependent on them. They are a piece of the economy, and yet they are vulnerable in all the ways that the people who've been stripped of citizenship in other countries by people, by regimes that we wouldn't admire, are vulnerable. And so we've created this weird subset of essentially stateless people. Um, It's not just as simple as send them to Mexico or send them, you know, some of them are seeking asylum. Some of them are migrant workers. Some of them are born here. Some of them are born here. Yes. One of the biggest lessons from the book is taking any kind of extra legal action against a group of people, not on the basis of crimes that they've committed, but on the basis of identity is really problematic. And I think that there is an extra kink in it when you're talking the ICE settings, because many of them will have violated a law. But I would add to that, that we have a system which has facilitated that law violation, fostered it, and is dependent on it for a very long time. And so at some point, I think there has to be an accounting. And if the U.S. as a democracy wants to vote and say, we want a smaller economy, you know, we, we are willing to tolerate the smaller economy that would come from less immigrants being here, you know, if, if there's some real process by which uh, those people who have been made 
vulnerable are not made more vulnerable. Maybe there's a route to that, but how I see it playing out reminds me very much of the rhetoric and the actions of what you see in places that are the kind of states that end up running concentration camps. And it becomes about ethnic racial identity. Um, You have questions of, you know, you talk about terrorism and disease and, you know, that public health stuff that we talked about at the beginning, where it becomes as if they are a danger to our culture, as if they are a, uh, an infection in the culture. That's the rhetoric that we're seeing. So there's nothing that leads me to believe this is really about getting the people who are a danger to the country out or that it is some rational new approach to immigration policy. Everything we're seeing is framed around demonizing this group of people. And so that concerns me along with the theme. The president of my calls books. them animals. <laughs> yes. Well, and that, and again, that's what I'm saying. It's the same rhetoric that you see. And so my concern is actually that places like Guantanamo and the ICE detention camps will institutionalize and bureaucratize this in new ways because yeah. it's important to recognize that this is not something that just came in with the new administration. This is something, you know, there were lawsuits against the Obama administration for the conditions in some of these detention facilities for having kids subject to stuff that the courts had said that they should not be allowed to be detained in those settings before. So, um, um, this is something that built, as Guantanamo has been built over time. And uh, as you said, you know, at what point can you call them extra legal? Well, with Guantanamo, part of it was declared extra legal. And then so Congress came behind and made new legislation to make it more accepted. So you're developing a body of law that's reinforcing this. And that's concerning as well. Um, you're institutionalizing this stuff. And historically, what we often see is things that get used against outsiders people that are generally agreed on as outsiders in one iteration, in the next evolution, those same tactics are turned against people who are labeled undesirable within a country or a, um, or a region. Lock them up. And, yeah. Well, and, and I think some of, the, some of the, yeah, with some of the press attacks that we're seeing, you know, the U.S., has a really long history of, uh, and some pretty strong democratic institutions. We certainly still have the right, um, the general right of protest, but we're seeing that get chipped away in some arenas. The First Amendment is still pretty widely regarded in court cases, but um, that's clearly the public is amenable to other interpretations. And so, you know, with a lot of the court appointments that are happening there, you know, we're just at this crossroads, I think, where those institutions are vulnerable. And the way I've tried to frame it is, you know, the U.S. isn't going to disappear tomorrow. Uh, but let's say there's 30 hurdles that have to be jumped before we're in a like an uh, irretrievably bad spot you know, eight or nine of them have been knocked down. And so we see the direction that's going. And I think that it's time, you know, not just in the U.S., but it's it's a worldwide, worldwide thing that we've been seeing, particularly in the last few years. Don't just assume that history ended and, you know, democracy has won somehow and everything is settled. And I know a lot of the baffler listeners and readers are not going to have assumed that anyway. But there are people who felt very comfortable with that. Um, you know, these institutions are stronger than than most of the countries and governments that have fallen in the course of my book that I researched. But I don't think we should assume that, it's not, that we're not vulnerable. Certainly. One of the scariest lines in your book came early in the book, and it was about the U.S. experience in the Philippines with uh, creating concentration camps after just having fought a war with Spain in part stoked over the horrors of the Spanish concentration camps in Cuba. But uh, and to paraphrase the quote that you used, it was that a, a, an American commander did not have to issue an order for civilians to die. Essentially, once the policy was in place, you know, the outcome was, was set. And that's a recurring theme. 
in in all of your your work on this and that's we have to be on guard for now we we do have the, the mechanisms in place right and they'll go on their own you know yes. it's it's a um it, it is a real danger it, it, when i became a parent one of the things I quickly realized was that I had failed to anticipate some things as a parent. They were failures of imagination, like not in a creative sense, but in a, uh, I had failed to brace adequately for some of the harder aspects of parenting because I had failed to imagine how difficult or challenging they would be or the ways in which things could go wrong. And and maybe if you really could anticipate all those things, you would never be a parent. So maybe that's necessary. <laughs> but in the policy world, there is often a failure to imagine the worst ways that a policy can go, not necessarily among the critical press. I mean, that's part of the press's job is to say, hey, wait, what if this happens? What if this happens? But policymakers tend to be people who think that they're going to be able to solve a problem, particularly if a system is pushing them toward a certain kind of policy. They're going to assume the best things. You know, I believe that I'm trying to remember if it was Cheney or Rumsfeld. I think it was Rumsfeld who said we're going to be greeted with flowers and in Iraq, you know, and it's like, yeah, the whole administration was saying. That, but, yeah, yeah, but I but I was somebody who was sort of leading the charge with that. And I think that in those moments, I think many of those people believe that. And so it's the job of the rest of, you know, the world and the, the press and the public to be skeptical, I think, to be skeptical, particularly when somebody wants to move outside the normal channels to deal with things. But as you said, now we're in a conundrum because we have this system that is essentially glommed onto the normal process of things. And so now we have a second sort of system that's for people who are labeled suspected terrorists or people who are labeled as suspected immigration violators. And and we do that differently. And running that parallel separate system is fundamentally undemocratic. And one of the things that I uh, I hope is that as long as we can be pointing that out, aware of it, and other people are becoming aware of it, that the system will choke on it. And as long as the system is choking on it, as I think the system is choking on Guantanamo for sure, even as the administration tries to move forward with it, they haven't come to trial yet because they are now trying to follow more evidentiary rules, not use torture and all these things. And it's really hard to bring these cases. And so every year that goes on that they don't have those trials underlines that this system is not a normal normal legal system. And uh, so I think, you know, first steps are, uh, it's not my job policy, thank goodness, you know, that's, it's hard enough to just research this and, and write the uh, diagnosis, you know, the prescription is a tough thing, what do you do? But um, I think that we are going to face these kinds of problems, as long as we have these extrajudicial methods of dealing with things. And once things are mainstreamed again, if we get to that point, where we have one legal system that's dealing with all of these issues, then there will still be problems. There will still be abuses. There will still be court cases. There will still be these other things. But I think we'll be much healthier as a society if we have them inside one framework instead of this is the kind of justice we give these guys and this is the kind of justice we give these guys because they're somehow due less. Um, I think that's always even, and I understand there are distinctions between citizens and non-citizens, but once you start moving deeply into allowing punitive conditions for any group of people, I think it's a real danger zone. What I have seen is it's much more permissible in public around the country by politicians on my local level, you know, national level, um, by people out in the community to voice disparaging statements about whole cultures and identities in a way that I think was at least discouraged in polite society before, but 
certainly still sometimes happen, but I think it's on the upsurge. It's become reasonable to do that. Um, I, I do think there's a hatefulness that uh, has been sort of jump-started. I don't know how dedicated people are to that. Uh, I'd like to think that um, a civic shift could go back as quickly as it came this direction. But in the meantime, I think we need to tend to the institutions that are our bulwark against our worst impulses. Absolutely. It's my feeling that we can't wait for the numbers to come in to have this conversation because it could take two years and who knows what horrible things could happen. Right. But I think it's important to talk in specifics, you know, and and what's possible. And so I feel these things are happening and maybe it will be too late if I wait to see how much of them are happening. But, you know, a useful question to ask yourself is if these things were in danger, if these institutions that I see as critical to democracy were in danger, what are the things I would do? You know, if you're listening to us talking here, what are the things that you would do to protect them? It's not going to hurt you to do some of those things now, you know, um, to be to be engaged in whatever that means. And I'm a journalist, so I don't do advocacy work. You know, I don't, I don't get involved in that particular way. Um, I try to portray the situation of what's happening. But um, that information can be used by anybody for whatever their route to assuring the society that they want to live in is, whether that's protecting the press, whether that is, you know, standing up for immigrants, whether that is running for your local school board. I mean, there's a million ways that that can play out for people in the country. I talked about the failure to imagine before. Go ahead and imagine what are some of the worst case scenarios? What would be the things that you wished you had done? You know, it's not going to be barricade yourself in your house with an AK-47 probably. You know, there's a few things short of that. What can you do now to make the the place that you want to live in. That was Andrew Pitzer, author of One Long Night, Global History of Concentration Camps. Pick it up. It's out in September. This show is coming back in mid-September. Please support it. Go to newsfromnowherepodcast.com. Make sure you're on the public feed, so even if you can't kick in money, you can get the highlights once a month. Thanks again to The Baffler. It's been real. Field Commander Cohn he was almost important spy Wounded in the line of duty Parachuting acid Into diplomatic cocktail party Urging Fidel Castro to Abandon fields and castles Leave it all And like a man Come back to nothing special Such as waiting Ticket lines Silver bullet suicides Messianic ocean tides Racial roller coaster rides And other forms of boredom Advertised as poetry your sleep now I know your life's been hard But many men have fallen where you promised to stand God 